Hello, and welcome to Future of London City Bites podcast. This episode is part of the Connections series on how relationships between aspects of our work and home lives are changing through COVID. Today, we focus on the evolving relationship between digital and small business, including how local government and other organizations are supporting that. We're hearing a lot right now about pivoting business models or shifting from wholesale to consumer or B2B to B2C, but what does that all mean on the ground and how can people access that? Do we need to get more specific about what digital means now that it's so integral to our work and our lives? Micro to small businesses or SMEs are already a powerful mosaic, or at least they were, heading into the pandemic. In 2019, some 5.9 million UK SMEs accounted for 2.2 trillion pounds in turnover, or half the UK total. They also accounted for 16 million jobs, or 60% of that total. Many of these are shopfront based and suffering hugely despite waves of government assistance. Other owners and employees have been able to work from home and maintain or rethink their services, their products, or their customer base to survive. And some from tiny Etsy style home businesses to monoliths like Amazon are thriving. Rightly or wrongly, digital has become shorthand for data focused services, visual content and ways to connect. Throughout the pandemic, the importance of all of these has soared. Councils and citizens are meeting online, wholesalers are selling food to households, and individuals and organizations hunt for that elusive broadband sweet spot to schedule their events. Today's guests deliver, support, or signpost to digital services in a small business world, and we're delighted to have them. Alison Partridge is Managing Director of OneTech, part of the Capital Enterprise family. For nearly 30 years, she's worked across EU cities to support inclusive entrepreneurship and innovation. In 2018, she founded OneTech with colleagues and members at Capital Enterprise to tackle the lack of diversity in London's tech startup ecosystem. Allison's been at the forefront of COVID impact on the tech sector and responses to it. Joe Mathewson is co-founder and COO of Firefly Learning, a fast-growing ed tech company focusing on student support, parent engagement, and distance learning. Joe and his business partner created Firefly while doing their GCSEs when the experience was very close to home. In response to COVID-19, Firefly has offered schools free access to the platform through the end of December. Onyeka Onyekwelu is Strategic Engagement Manager at the London Office of Technology and Innovation, or LOTI. LOTI helps boroughs collaborate on projects that use the best of digital, data, and innovation to improve services and outcomes for Londoners. She's also worked with the UN Women, Equality, and Human Rights Commission and the Bar Associations on access to justice, digitization of the courts, and equality and diversity. During lockdown, she's worked with colleagues on digital methods for public engagement. There are actually some connections within this group as well. You'll hear from Joe Mathewson about schools customers, but in listening to his comments, it really struck me that when he speaks to students and parents, it's the same in a way as uh, employers speaking about their teams, council speaking about citizen. It's a relationship between the source and people who are the audience are feeding back to that. Onyeka also speaks about helping councils with procurement. Procurement is, of course, critical to letting small businesses in the door to get that public sector business, which can be such a lifeline. So we hope that you see some of the threads here as well and that you find ways to connect with them. What impacts have you seen in your respective spheres of operation um, since March? Um, Allison, you work directly with small businesses and the tech sector. What are you seeing? 
So first of all, we should say that at OneTech, we work predominantly with early stage startups and even people who haven't actually reached the point of having a startup yet. And we've seen an enormous uplift in demand for the services that we offer. I think in terms of the more established companies, we've seen moves from um, sort of an, an innovation curve to more of a survival experience. There's a huge lack of early stage investment, particularly pre-seed and angel rounds, but generally cash is a problem for I think all companies, particularly for pre-revenue tech startups where it's sort of too early often for them to access some of the government support that's been available, for example, the Future Fund. There's a challenge in terms of overall ideation, like some of the serendipitous moments that we used to have in terms of networking and stuff like that just don't happen. It's very difficult to test a product and service in market at the moment because you can't have that access to your customers. As I think we all know, there's been a rise in, in B2C companies. I think the demand for those is increasing, but generally on B2B, the demand has been falling and generally I'd say there's a confusion the companies don't really know where to turn to for advice they don't know what advice that they want and when we did the research for um, JP Morgan and the, and the London Economic Action Partnership back in June there's loads of support out there for, for companies but people don't really know where to find the support that they need so I think that's a that's a major issue that we need to think about. Anyeka, what have you been seeing in the last six months and how have you been able to help? So two of the starkest findings of our City Tools report last year was that firstly, approximately 50% of the service areas rely on technology that's acquired from only 10 key vendors. And the second was that around 91% of spending reported by councils was with the top 15 suppliers. What's even more alarming is that this represents only a third of the number of contracts that are awarded. So some of these contracts are with these large suppliers that bundle service delivery and technology together. And it doesn't really make clear their price and IT capabilities used in boroughs. And we spent the better part of the year basically developing that into a beta prototype which we launched in London Tech Week, which is now called um, 33. And we've spent the time during COVID onboarding boroughs um, and trying to update the information so that we can get a better idea of how we can encourage and support boroughs' ambitions to innovate in procurement. Um, and in the report, we found that sometimes even different departments within the same borough bought the same technology in silos. So what we're doing um, now is to work with public to identify the barriers hindering um, collaboration within the sector and working with um, procurement leads to really break down those barriers and see whether we can overcome them and, and collaborate with more experimental approaches and really innovate in the sector. Excellent. Joe, what are you seeing um, in your area of operation? So we work exclusively with schools um, at Firefly and obviously, as, as everyone's aware, it's had a huge impact on schools themselves, so our customers. And they had to close very, very quickly. When we talked to them, they often had started planning a few days or at best a couple of weeks before the, the mass school closure in the UK. Um, so they had to react very quickly. The other element was parents taking on a whole new role. Those of you with children listening will, I'm sure, be aware of that. I think with a newfound understanding of what teachers have to do every day. Um, and so for us, there were two main themes with our customer. One we call learning continuity, um, which is really about how do they keep teaching uh, their, their main business as a school through this crisis. And the other was around parent engagement. So more about crisis communication. How do we keep in touch with the key people, the key stakeholders, and um, so they actually know what's, what's going on. 
The other questions that Allison brought up, um, you, you were sort of responding by nodding in terms of the questions about ideation, survival, and so on. Was there anything in what she said that really resonated for you? Yeah, I think as a, as a business, um, it was obviously a, a big challenge. We were lucky um, in that we had moved to a form of more flexible working earlier in the year. Um, so we'd had a couple of months of practice at more hybrid forms of, of working. But one of the learnings from that was there are certain things um, that work much better in person. So over the, the last few months of the year where we were able to meet up, we were finding that those really creative exercises were the things where it made sense to get everyone into a room together. And obviously that's become much more challenging. Thanks for that. Well, I think the, the research that, we're, that, we, that we did back in the spring um, and published back in June, July time suggested that the, the sectors that are most affected by COVID-19 are probably the ones that will be able to bounce forward the most effectively. So namely things like life sciences, obviously medtech, health tech, more impact-driven businesses. We're seeing, we're seeing sort of more, more demand for impact-driven businesses, particularly by consumers. Um, and I, I genuinely believe that tech and innovation will be, uh, and knowledge-based industries really will be at the heart of, of, of the recovery. But I also think there are opportunities for, you know, what we might traditionally have called back bedroom entrepreneurs or wannapreneurs. If you think back, you know, I'm one of the few people who works in this industry who's over 50. And if this had happened like 20 years ago, where would we be? You know, we had no Zoom. We had no Amazon Marketplace. We had no Uber Eats or Deliveroo. And all of these different platforms give, you know, single entrepreneurs and, and individuals an opportunity to grow their own companies from home. Um, and just this morning, there was a statistic published, I think it was 9.5% increase in the number of small business um, formations between January and September compared to the same period last year. That's almost a 10% increase in the number of people who are setting up companies. Now, survival is a bit different to set up, obviously, but it's great that the entrepreneurial spirit is there in the British population. And, you know, I see green shoots really in entrepreneurialism and, and innovation. Thanks very much, Alison. Uh, Onyeka, the, the idea of recovery, it's a thing now. It's, it, there's a task force, there's boards, there's transition board. Um, you're very much at the heart of that. And one of the missions that the recovery board has is digital access for all. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, we held workshops with borough officers and private sector suppliers to explore how we could work together to tackle digital exclusion, because it is important. COVID-19 really amplified this as everything became remote almost immediately from access to education, working from home, accessing government services, as well as just staying connected with family and friends. It's all online. Um, and we can't close our eyes to the barriers that this now presents for individuals from specific groups. So we've been working with our boroughs to identify those barriers and think about how we might address them. Um, and in response to some of those needs expressed during these workshops, we hosted a two-hour showcase at Digi Leaders Week to provide a platform for boroughs to share what projects and products they've developed to bridge the digital divide and capital. Because at the end of the day, they're all doing amazing work, but they don't always know what each other is doing. And we're committed to supporting boroughs to share the knowledge and ideas and resources they've developed and ensure that they're aligned with the higher level missions of the London Recovery Task Force and, and they're replicable and, and scalable by others. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Joe. I'm, I hope I'm getting this defined right. I think of your business as being at a sort of an intersection between online support and live parent and student and teacher engagement. Um, if that's accurate, I'm wondering if you see that that relationship shifting between live and online in terms of service delivery. 
I mean, absolutely right. So schools, when they closed, had to find a way to, to keep teaching and learning going um, in a non-physical uh, way. And um, they were, by and large, pretty creative. There's quite a, a wide variety of how schools reacted to that, but they were forced to um, think of ways to allow teaching and learning to, to keep going on um, from home. Um, and that's required them to work much more closely with parents than, than ever before. So learning has always been a bit of a team effort between the, the school and the home, but I think that's been massively amplified in the current situation. And what I find interesting now is that we see an even more complicated situation in many ways, which is a much more of a hybrid. So uh, many students are back at school, um, but often individual students or year groups may have to go home or be um, isolated for some period of time. Um, and so the school's got to manage both um, people in the classroom physically and some students who are unable to attend. So there are a whole new set of challenges there are a lot of uh, commentators out there talking about the fact that hybrid doesn't work. You can't have some people in a room and some people remote. You're having to do it. Um, do you have a response to those critics? I think it is really, really tough, um, but we do see some schools uh, succeeding with that. I think um, that it's about making sure that there is a, a, a digital record of what's going on um, so that people who are not there necessarily live have got a way of catching up and, and keeping and keeping up. I think it's also about just trying and experimenting and, and seeing what works and, and what doesn't work. Thanks. I'm going to stick with you in terms of your business. I mean, you started when you guys were teenagers, um, but because it's an interesting business, you've been the target of potential IP ripoffs of takeovers and so on. You've, you've bought a business online. What's, I guess, what's the position now, a small business in a digital world? Are you feeling exposed? Are you feeling comfortable? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Obviously, the world changed very, very rapidly. Um, and Alison referred earlier to some of the challenges that businesses face, and we're not immune to those. It, it makes it very important to conserve cash um, and to, to make sure that you can be there for your, your customers. And we saw usage go up by over 10 times in peak periods um, as schools went um, online, as it were. Um, and the beauty of, of systems like Amazon is you only pay for what you use. Um, but the cost of that is that when your usage goes up 10 times, your Amazon bill um, goes up pretty much 10 times. So we obviously had to be very careful and aware of, of how we reacted to that and be quite prudent as a business um, and, you know, be, be willing to make quite quick decisions um, in a very uncertain world to, to react to that. You know, one of the decisions we made is we didn't want to pass that on to schools immediately um, because we knew they were in a really, really tough spot. So. Um, you know, thinking about your customers, I think, is key as well. And that puts even more pressure on us to make sure that we find new ways of being more efficient, um, for example, on the Amazon side, um, so that we can conserve cash and make sure we're, we're there for the long run. Thanks. And I'll ask one sort of expansive question that I'm, I'll come to Alison on afterwards. Uh, you are out there in the world now. People are using your services. You're kind of a leader in what you do. Are you a target? And should other small businesses be thinking about their, I guess, their IP and how exposed they are in the market? Yeah, I guess with, with success comes comes visibility. Um, and um, that has both uh, advantages and, and disadvantages. It's certainly a space for us that both um, some of the big players, um, uh, particularly US tech big players, have got involved with. So both Microsoft and Google um, now have quite deep offerings um, in the education space. Um, and to be honest, um, as a company that's really focused on only on education, unlike, unlike those businesses, there, we, there's still a lot of value that a, a system like Firefly can add on top of Microsoft and Google. 
But one of the challenges you have um, is when the narrative is that these large companies uh, with a free offering um, can do everything that a, a school needs. And that's something I think where um, help from um, government, uh, both at a local level and a, a national level is, is valuable to uh, overcome these challenges. Thanks, Joe. Um, Alison, I'm going to come to you. You work with um, tech startups. I'm imagining you're seeing this kind of exposure and risk and opportunity with them. How do you advise them now? I think my advice to them always would be to, to try and embrace it and not see it as a threat, really. I mean, the, the, the big companies are out there. Um, I think seeing them as predators isn't necessarily very helpful as a small company. Seeing them as partners and potential customers might be a better way of perceiving um, that those, those big players. And certainly for, for OneTech, which is a you know, very small player, you know, we have partnerships with Google startups. We have partnerships with WeWork and the like. Um, and we value them as partners. And I think that's probably my advice to, to, to small companies would be to do this, try and do the same thing where you can. Onyeka, so we just talked about the fact that big doesn't necessarily mean a threat. We talked about the fact that collaboration is key and that's one of Loti's drivers. What are you saying to, uh, to councils about collaboration and how are you enabling that? Collaboration is key. Um, it's really important. And we're working on an innovation and procurement piece of work with public, as I alluded to earlier, and one of the main um, sort of outcomes that we want from that project is to be able to identify what barriers are hindering collaboration within the public sector and agree on solutions to improve technology um, commissioning going forward and then produce practical guidance for commercial teams to harness, as well as supporting boroughs working with them, as well as public who are experts in this um, field to implement these new approaches within a live technology tender. And then we can identify future technology tenders to, to improve. But if we do it in sort of a staged approach, we think there'll be greater success as a result of that. Thanks. Um, I'm going to stick with you, actually, because, uh, again, going back to the digital access for all mission of uh, the recovery board, um, there are small businesses and, I, you know, thinking like a small salon with without a treat well account or something like that. I know you focus more on the bigger things. Is there any way to support small businesses like that? Well, actually, we found that there's no simple fix. There's no one size fits all. And it's so heartbreaking to see so many local businesses on the high street closing down as a result of the pandemic. Um, but one of the um, solutions that was suggested in our workshop with boroughs is that now um, we see that boroughs are able to provide, you know, digital skills training to their residents or to their counsellors. Um, and they're thinking, oh, how can we scale this up? Um, so what we're thinking of is supporting um, the potential for boroughs to establish and support local digital hubs to deliver training and devices to local groups and communities. And perhaps if we, um, you know, try, try different things, experiment with different, different things, we find that that might be a new way of um, working, but also a, a new way of bridging that digital divide for local businesses. Excellent. Thanks for that. Um, Alison, inclusivity in the tech sector has been one of your key missions, I guess, personally, mm -hmm. as well as professionally. Um, do you see potential here? Yeah, actually, I mean, obviously, it's, it's been a terribly challenging six to nine months for everybody, and particularly for the people who are sort of farthest, furthest away from prosperity, let's say. And, you know, at the same time, we've seen, as I say, a huge increase in demand for our services. I think there's a lot of people who are thinking about different ways of carving out a positive economic future for themselves. And I think that, you know, we can we can try and turn this around into an opportunity and try and see digital and tech as a bit of an equaliser. If you think about some of the opportunities in digital, you know, you can access new markets. 
you can access new talent, you can talk to people in different countries, you can talk to people anywhere in the world. Um, and these are things that we probably always, always could do, or at least could do for the last five, 10 years, but probably haven't done habitually. So we see that as, a, as an opportunity. And of, of course, also there are in some ways just de decreases in, in other costs like workspace and things like that. So I do think it can be an equalizer. But as you were saying before, I think, you know, there are still a lot of people who are excluded. And one of the things we're trying to do is to connect these underrepresented communities, these people who are sort of furthest away from opportunity with the opportunities in London's tech startup ecosystem. And one of our new programmes is all about supporting traditional businesses to survive and pivot through an online offer. And, and I think that's going to be a really important thing for, for some of the smaller companies to, to think about. But, but it's not like you can't go into a community and say, right, we're going to do this for you. You, you have to outreach within the community and work with the groups within those communities so that it's like peer-to-peer -peer learning. I think that's the most effective way of delivering that kind of impact. What do you expect to see in the next, I'll say, two to five years coming out of this relationship between small business and digital? Um, Joe, I'll start with you. I think digital will continue to, to be a totally critical part of a, a small business's strategy, right? And I think it's maybe been forced to be over the last few months. Um, as I say, our experience is both as a small business ourselves and as a tech company, it's always been a, a core part of what we do, but also working with our customers. And they're having to take a much more strategic approach to technology than I think many of them have done before. Um, it's something that senior leadership teams are engaging with more than ever before. Um, and I don't see that going away anytime soon. In, in fact, I think that's probably just going to grow from here. Okay, and I'll ask the corollary to that is, what would you like to see? Let's say we're five years down the line. What would you like to see happening in this space? That's a great question. I, I think, um, as I say, something that is, is critical is, is the embrace of, of technology strategy from the senior leadership um, within, within schools um, and really driving forward what they would like um, from technology, from a teaching and learning uh, point of view. Um, for, for some time in the past, uh, technology in schools has been something that has been done um, more from a, um, an administration uh, uh, and back office point of view. And I think really technology coming to be a forefront of the front office in our market um, is something we're already seeing happening and, and I see being able to make a massive impact um, on ultimately on, on students' education. Thanks, Joe. Um, Alison, what do you expect to see on the horizon in the next two to five years? And what would you like to see at the end of that? I would expect and hope to see digital scene um, no longer as a vertical. So it's not an industry in its own right. It's something that cuts across everything that we do. I mean, there's even research about the, the shift, you know, when electricity was introduced and the shift that that made in productivity. And, you know, people compare digital and tech to having a sort of 10 times impact that electricity had. I think we need to cease thinking about digital as something that's sort of an add-on to, to, to a company's suite of business tools. You know, there's a lot of research around, you know, let's see it as a utility. Let's see it as something that everyone has to embrace. Although it is part of the future. Everyone's going to be using it. And we need to, we need to consider it as business as usual, really, across, across our businesses and, and really support them to embrace it as an opportunity rather than seeing it as a threat. And, and I think part of the responsibility for that does lie with policymakers. I do a lot of work in, in other European countries and, and, you know, across Europe, there are a lot of people who continue to see digital and tech as a threat. You know, tech is bad. And, you know, we've, we've got to stop that narrative. You know, if you, if you look at history, out of every really tricky time in history comes innovation and creativity 
And I do believe that, that the tech and innovation within tech will be part of the solution to what, what we're living through now. Um, not just as a tool, but really as, as something that's just part of the way that we live, everything that we do. Thanks, Alison. We just did a podcast on uh, culture and place and, and digital was very much a part of that too. It enhances the live experience, doesn't replace it. Interesting. Onyeka, um, to you finally, this question about um, what are you seeing on the horizon in your work in the next two to five years and what would you like to see at the end of that? I couldn't agree more with Alison's view about it being a, seen as a utility. So I, I believe that COVID has been one of the single most disruptive factors in for London in a generation um, and digital data and innovation have played a real role in the crisis period and uh, supporting boroughs during this time and it will be key during recovery as we are seeing um, so far but um, going forward what we'd like to see is um, sort of digital data and innovation being seen as an integral part in the same way that you would consider finance, for instance, in the way that boroughs work um, and working in sort of experimental and new ways with smaller businesses to meet emerging needs. That's that's what I would like to see going forward. It's not what it's not working in the same way. It's not business as usual in the traditional sense, but just trying to think more innovatively to, to meet the growing need of the population. Thank you. That's a great way to end. Is there anything else you want to add? I think that the only thing I've, I, I would maybe reiterate rather than add is, is the importance of government in this and the importance of government knowing when to step back and allow entrepreneurs and innovation to sort of step up. Yeah, you cannot regulate an entrepreneurship ecosystem. It has to evolve and, and grow organically. So the government, and I, when I say government, I mean government at all levels, need to put in place the sort of key components from which that innovation can grow, but not, not strive to control it. So it's being a facilitator of innovation r- rather than a, a kind of leader of innovation. Um, not, that, not that they impose solutions, that they actually listen and, and, and allow entrepreneurs to come up with solutions. Thank you. Anyeka, I'm that sounds like exactly what you're doing. Does that chime for you? Definitely. Um, that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> um, but it's a culture change, I think. Um, and it, it will take time for people to, to really understand. But one thing that we did notice during COVID is that those who didn't understand um, things, especially to do with digital and tech and the role that it plays in um, supporting um, particular departments to thrive, are, are now buying into it. So change change happens and sometimes it it takes time, but sometimes it takes um, an issue such as the pandemic to really bring it to light. Thanks for that. Um, Joe, anything to add from you? Yeah, I think just on the on the some of the long term benefits of tech and innovation, um, you know, one of the biggest things I see um, is that there are more and more things which we now record digitally, which we didn't do before. And we see that particularly in our space with with schools. And there are just huge opportunities, I think, in the medium and long term in terms of driving insights from data that just weren't there before, Um, because as people are using more and more digital tools to do their everyday job, there's a huge amount of data captured as part of that that can be really, really used for good in terms of driving better outcomes and learning about what works and what doesn't work in our industry as an example from different teaching and learning interventions and different um, types of um, assessment and pieces of work. So I think there's a huge opportunity that's already building um, as people use digital tools more and more to do their everyday job. This is not about long-term, everybody, um, particularly in the school space, sitting at home uh, and learning entirely from home. I think everyone's learned the importance of face-to-face contact, which we mentioned at the beginning of this, of this discussion. And so the, real, the, the things I find most interesting in digital innovation 
is where you're at that intersection between how you do kind of supercharge and improve face-to-face -face contact using clever digital tools rather than replace it. And I think we'll see more and more of that going forward. That's an interesting point too, because uh, there are a lot of apps out there that I'm sort of beta testing myself, but you don't have time to use them. It's like people rely on PowerPoint. It's kind of crap, but you use it because you don't have time to learn Prezi and you can't count on your, your broadband connection. Um, I think there are a lot of fascinating tools that we should all be trying to embrace and maybe assigning someone in an organization to be your innovation checker and your researcher and your tester would be good. I also would add, um, when you spoke about gathering data, you and Mill who was at Catapult at the time, spoke at a Map London conference I ran in 2019 about councils keeping their data because they'll do these studies and then they sort of release it to the consultant who does the study. They can keep that because it's gold and it will tell you things over time. And if you give up your data, you just don't have that resource anymore. And you, you have to pay to get it back or it's gone. So there's a cautionary tale there, I think. Um, and I, maybe I can just give one example from our space um, on, on data. So we're working more and more with schools on parent engagement, which has become particularly critical. So both kind of crisis communication with parents at the moment, but also involving them with learning. Um, and what we're able to do is, is help schools understand better and better how well they are engaging with parents, both as a whole and for different sets of parents. And that's something that's historically been very, very tough for schools to understand. Um, because it's a, a call into the school office and maybe a written note. Um, and it's very difficult to, to look from a top down as to how effectively are we engaging with parents and how much are the interventions that we're doing making a difference. And that's something that is now uh, much, much easier for schools to, to learn. As w whether that note actually makes it home to the parent is always a question. <laughs> but um, that's good. And would you say that's transferable to other industries? Absolutely. I, I think, as I say, that's all about people using tech more and more for their day to day jobs um, and not having to do a load of extra work on reporting, but reporting and data almost being a natural byproduct of, of what people do day to day. Anyeka, because so much of our audience is local authority, I'm going to ask you about procurement. Um, what would you say to procurement professionals across councils about embarking on this? Because it can be hard to change in that space and there's a lot of risk. There is a lot of risk, um, but that's why we're working with public and, and um, especially on this project, because there are ways that we can work on collaborative commissioning and joint procurement. Um, but we need to, you know, experiment together and see this together. And if we can share intelligence on the market together um, and maybe spot where we can align contracts and um, share our experiences of particular suppliers relationships, then we can improve our internal and collective knowledge and really work as a collective and work in our collective buying power as a sector and really take ownership of our I guess our agency because at the end of the day if there is all this funding available then it should be used and in the right way I would think. Excellent thank you so much. That's it for us today. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of City Bites. If you go to the website at futureoflondon.org.uk, you'll find links to other episodes on leading through change and on other kinds of connections that are happening through COVID. Look forward to seeing you out there in the world. Thank you.